Business of Fun podcast. I'm your host, Dave Wakeman. Today's episode is brought to you by my friends at Booking Protect. Any booking, any sector, anywhere. Booking Protect has you covered. To find out how your organization can create a better buying experience for your customer, offer customers more peace of mind, and create a new revenue stream for your organization, visit www.bookingprotect.com. Now, my guest today is someone that I wanted to have on, and he doesn't necessarily have a direct connection to the world of sports and entertainment business, but he is writing a book that I was fascinated by called Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL, and my guest is Jeff Perlman. Now, this story was interesting to me because as a kid, I remember Herschel Walker signing with the Generals and that being a huge story in northern Georgia, where I'm from. Um, but I also found that this, this story of the rise and fall of the USFL had a lot of parallels and a lot of lessons that we could learn about the world we live in today. Um, if you're unfamiliar with the story, uh, Al Davis is involved. There is a antitrust victory for the USFL that netted them $1. Uh, Donald Trump plays a huge role, um, and we talk about how Donald Trump used some of the same sales tactics and uh, smoke screens today that he has used around the country now um, we talk about the wisdom of forcing of trying to force a merger with the NFL of moving from spring to the fall we talk about the original commissioner and the guy who came up with the idea for the USFL a guy called David Dixon and how David Dixon had a really solid plan that maybe got kind of um, stolen away in all the bluster and thunder of Donald Trump and another guy called J. William Oldenburg uh, we talk about Herschel Walker Doug Flutie Reggie White um, the Denver Gold. We talk about the owners of the USFL turning their back on a quarter billion dollars in TV money for spring football to pursue this vision of making the NFL merge with them. I mean, it was really, really, to me, an interesting story. Um, and I think there's stuff that we can learn today, even as we operate in a much different uh, entertainment and I've experienced market. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation I had with Jeff Perlman. I know it's a little bit different, but I do think you're going to uh, learn some stuff um, and hopefully at least you'll be entertained by the conversation. So let me turn it over to my conversation with Jeff Perlman. I want to welcome Jeff Perlman to the Business of Fun podcast. Jeff, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I'm pretty excited to have you on the show today because you wrote this great book about the USFL and I thought maybe I was the only person who really ever thought of, still thought about the USFL and was really interested in it. Um, I think probably <laughs> I'm going to ask, you know, let me ask the, uh, the, the, the big question from the start. Is Donald Trump the reason the USFL failed or, or not? <laughs> I mean, he's a huge part of it. I mean, nobody, nobody put a gun to these guys' heads to follow him and they did. So you didn't have, you know, they didn't have to do what he said. They didn't have to sue the NFL. They didn't have to move to fall. They decided he knew what he was talking about. So is it his fault? In many ways, yes. But again, they didn't have to. These are all successful businessmen. You know, these are people who are, you know, developers and, you know, former ambassadors and guys who had a lot of money and a lot of success. And they fell under the sway of the guy, like a lot of people do. So it's his fault, but they followed along, so it's their fault just as much. 
Yeah, no, and, and I really asked that just because I thought it would be funny and people would ask, want, want to know the answer to that right off of the bat because there's so much to uncover in this thing. Um, you know, to me, the parallels between the USFL and really a lot of the, the worst things that you see in professional sports today are were there, you know, back in the 80s. And, and that's really one of the things that appealed to me. Um, I know before we started recording, I, I talked, we talked about three big characters, but one of the ones that I find really interesting about this story is David Dixon, who was the guy who started the league. And he seemed to have right. a really strong vision for how to make the league successful. And what I, what I found out was, what, I guess what it seems like to me, and you tell me if I'm wrong, is that in the end, it became a battle between David Dixon's vision and Donald Trump's vision. And David Dixon's vision was one of restraint and sort of slow growth and, um, you know, being moderate in his views and kind of like building the thing over time. Whereas Donald Trump was all bluster and really flash in the pan, shiny, shiny things. Um, am I wrong in, in that assessment? No, I think you're correct. I, I mean, I don't think Donald Trump ever really had a vision for the USFL. I think he saw the USFL as a vehicle for him to get an NFL franchise. In fact, I know that's true. And David Dixon saw the USFL. His original idea was spring football league, slow growth, teams with regional appeal because you're going to primarily draft players from regional schools. Um, you know, you got to walk before you can run. Spring is going to be great because there's not that much going on in spring after March Madness and before baseball's playoffs. So you had this real opening, and it was a chance to do some great stuff. Donald Trump, it's not like a contrasting vision. It's almost like comparing a, an apple and a, and a, and a scooter. They're completely different things. Trump just saw the USFL as a way to get in the NFL. It was a way to get rich, a way to make more money, a way to get prestige. And Dixon saw the USFL as this magical, beautiful, potential alternative to the NFL. And once Dixon sort of founded the league, once the league kick-started, uh, by 84, he, I think he saw where it was going. He didn't like what he was seeing. He had the right story franchise, and he sold it to Jerry Argovitz, who started the Houston Gamblers. So he kind of whitewashed his hands of the USFL after, after founding it. Yeah, and he sold his franchise at a loss. Is that, isn't that correct? Like, or he sold it, you know? Like... No, that would be incorrect. No, he well, didn't. What he did was he sold it for no. He actually sold it for eight million. Most of the franchises were paying six million. So the other uh, owners were really upset with Dixon because he was making more of a profit on it than they were, and he thought that was in a, they thought that was inappropriate. He actually made eight million on what was supposed to be a six million dollar uh, sale. So it worked out well for him. Yeah. So David Dixon and I believe, and I forget the guy's name, who was the owner of the Denver Goldens. They were the only two people then that made money off the deal. Um. Yeah. Uh, Ron Blanding. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yes and no. I mean, Dixon invested a lot of his own money into the USFL and just starting the USFL. There was a lot of time, a lot of, you know, sweat and, and finances. So I don't know. I don't think he got rich off of it, but it, it worked out okay for him. I think more though, he was devastated by, he thought the USFL was going to work. He thought it was a great idea. He believed in it. And I think it kind of crushed him that it didn't. And, and yeah, I mean, because if you look at what his plan was, right, which is really great stadiums um, in very in good TV markets, gaining TV contracts and controlling spending, that's sort of the model that the NFL has created since the USFL is gone, right? So I mean, it seems like his vision was 
really, you know, decades in f- ahead of its time, right? Well, yes and no. I mean, I don't think his vision in that regard was all that different, altogether different from the NFL. I think the NFL also was thinking about market size and TV revenue and blah, blah, blah. Um, the USFL, unlike the World Football League, which came a few years before, was very TV-oriented. They were all about TV and ratings and getting deals. They got the ABC-ESPN deal really quickly. They hired as their first commissioner, Chet Simmons, who had been the head of ESPN. They were hyper-TV-focused. That was definitely part of the plan. And one of the benefits of playing in spring is you weren't going to have to worry about splitting uh, televised football with another league in a more established league. Um, where I think the USFL really sort of, you know, kind of influenced the NFL are a bunch of the markets where the NFL ultimately went into Jacksonville, uh, Tennessee, putting a team back in Baltimore. The USFL held an exhibition game in Carolina before, well before the Panthers ever existed. So there's definitely influence. I think a lot of things you named probably, it wasn't like it was brand new to the NFL, the ideas. Yeah. And, and I think, um, you know, at least in the, what I remember and then the research I did before I talked to you too, it's like things like um, uh, the two point conversion. Uh, there was like a really yeah. like rudimentary version of um, instant replay. I believe you like a challenge. You could offer challenges at the time, you know, it was like crazy stuff that, you know, at, oh, yeah. you know, way, adv- way, way advanced. Um, and you, you brought up an interesting thing about the markets and then about opening up new markets, because one of the challenges I know that that came up over and over again that seemed to really like put the league behind the eight ball early on was they had a lot of location issues. Um, I think probably the best ones were San Diego with I think it was what's called Jack Murphy Stadium at the time, and then also in Boston where the Boston team couldn't you know really couldn't find a place to play. And I guess kind of the, the question I want to ask is, you know, from your research, were these things that um, they, they really destructive to the league or did they, make, you know, ultimately become creative solutions that the guy that everybody had to come up with, you know, or was it somewhere, really something else? Well, the, uh, the franchise location is a really interesting story, actually, which you touched on. San Diego was originally a site for the league. Then um, the, uh, the, the stadium authority wouldn't give and they ended up going to um, in 1984 the Tathams were going to start go 50-50 whether Dan Fouts was going to jump to the U.S. They make it sound like it was all about a done deal that Dan Fouts was going to join the San Diego franchise but then again San Diego was resistant to giving the USFL uh, stadium access so they ended up opening a team in Oklahoma and Tulsa instead. And Boston was interesting. Uh, where the Patriots played, they would not lease. They wouldn't uh, The Patriots controlled the stadium, wouldn't allow a USFL team there. They played at Nickerson Field on the campus of Boston University, and there was almost no parking whatsoever. And after games, people were coming out and having their, their cars ticketed left and right. Also, the stadium held, I think, at most 21,000. So they, they moved after a year to New Orleans. So... They really had a lot of issues when it came to locations. And then with expansion, I mean, they opened a team in Tulsa. That was a terrible idea. They played at Sully Stadium where the University of Tulsa football team played. The attendance was horrible. And then San Antonio, they played basically in, the, in what was that, the Alamo Bowl, which is basically a souped-up high school stadium. So they definitely made some very bad decisions 
when it came to location. Some good ones, but also some really bad ones. Yeah, the I, and I know that you know they went from twelve to eighteen very quickly, you know, faster than David Dixon really wanted them to, and that's where like I start seeing parallels between some you know some of the actions that happen today, right? Um, with you see the the, lo- the relocation of NFL teams, and you see uh, the NHL kind of expanding. You see Major League Baseball expanding in the, in the markets that maybe they they don't have, you know, and it makes me think that. You know, it was like too much too soon, and that there was a little bit of desperation involved, and like hopefully something of this will catch on. You know, but you know, um, maybe I'm wrong. Well, I was going to say there wasn't there wasn't a little bit of desperation. There was a lot of desperation after the first year. The owners of our owners were were told you're going to lose money early on. Like this, you're not making a profit. You're running one in professional football, so they were aware of that. Um, but then they lost the money. It's one thing to think you're going to lose money. It's another thing to actually lose your money. So the idea, you know, originally they were going to expand the two markets, then four, finally six, because they were going to get six million a pop. I mean, six million from each new team. There was a lot of money coming into the league. But it was really a bad idea. There was no way San Antonio should have had a team. There was no way Tulsa should have had a team. Pittsburgh, probably not a great market for a U.S. It turns out, in a way... Um, Markets that were diehard, diehard, diehard NFL markets were not really great for the USFL. Washington, Chicago, Pittsburgh. It was hard to get fans to go see another team when you're so attached to one team. Right. I don't think the USFL was prepared for that either. Well, I, I think it's probably um, – it would be difficult for you to know that in advance see, because, I mean, especially – back in the eighties because you just don't have the capability, you know, the market research capabilities wouldn't have been as great. But, um, one thing that you did talk about and before when we were talking about San Diego, which I think is important for people to, to understand because as you talk about expansion was also the amount of talent that the USFL was able to sign and bring into the league, you know, cause so like on one hand you're spending money left and right, right. On, Huge contracts at the time for guys like Doug Flutie and Steve Young and uh, Reggie White and Herschel Walker. And at the same time, you're expanding uh, incredibly fast um, to try to cover for this. You know, to me, as as a business person, that's like a, a, a prime example of, you know, you're trying to do too much at once and everything's trying, you're trying to just do too much too soon. Um, you know, what kind of fed into the, um, the idea that they were going to, you know, just throw all this money at the players and create this new product, especially when they were losing money so readily. Well, I mean, the first thing was they, uh, they signed Herschel Walker basically came to them, his agent, uh, after his junior season at Georgia and, you know, which ended in, in, 19, uh, 1983 in January of 83 and when they lost to Penn State in the Sugar Bowl and Walker said I'm, I want to jump and at the time the NFL didn't take juniors and the USFL had a lot of debate do we want to do this do we want to sign a junior do we want to sign a guy to this amount of money and they ultimately decided it was worth it the bang for the buck would be there and you could probably argue it was but all of a sudden it really did change once you make an exception for one person, all of a sudden you're making exceptions for a lot of people. Um, and, you know, Donald Trump bought into the league after a year. Uh, the first year was 1983. Generals are owned by a different owner. 1984, Donald Trump comes in. 
He's immediately buying NFL players left and right. Brian Seid, Gary Barbro, Jim LeClaire, a lot of guys. He's going after Lawrence Taylor. He's going after Mark Gasnow. He's going after Randy White. He almost hires away Don Shula for the Miami Dolphins. He's throwing around money. Now then you have a new owner with the LA Express, Bill Odenberg. Bill Odenberg has just as big an ego, if not bigger, than Donald Trump. Well, all of a sudden, Bill Odenberg is signing three of the top four college offensive linemen in the country. You know, and all of a sudden, he's throwing this huge contract at Steve Young from BYU. Um, and they're putting together this NFL-caliber team, at least on paper. And then everyone else is like, well, if they're going to do this. What are we? We can't just not be good. And all of a sudden, what started as slow and steady wins the race turned into a rat race. You know, that's where it became, this rat race. And we got to hurry up. And if they're going to do it, we got to do it. And before long, everyone's irrationally throwing money all over the place. And um, it's kind of the beginning of the end for what was a great league. Yeah, it's interesting that you brought up Oldenburg because it seems that at the time that Donald Trump bought the New Jersey Generals and Oldenburg bought the team in the was the LA Express, if I'm not mistaken. Um, they, yeah. The owners were kind of like these guys have money. And they have they have vision, which we've already talked about. Was like Donald Trump doesn't have a vision, uh, you know. Which I think you probably, if you're drawing a line and you're taking a political stance, I would say like that mirrors everything he's done, right? He's good on bombast, bad on vision, um, and they kind of just bought in to the, the these two guys and not understanding that they didn't have a vision. And that seems like that year when both of them came into the league around the same time was the beginning of the end of the, of the USFL. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, we can talk about Trump here a little, I mean, or a lot, you know, the, uh, <laughs> the perfect analogy I make before between Trump as a, as a UFL, uh, USFL owner and Trump as a uh, political candidate slash president when he's the owner of the, uh, the Generals, they have Brian Seipp as their quarterback. Brian Seipp was a 1980 NFL MVP. He was a very, very good quarterback. But in 1985, Doug Flutie is coming out of Boston College as a Heisman Trophy winner. Well, Trump decides we need to get Doug Flutie out of Boston College. So he offers him the biggest contract in pro football history for a guy who would have been probably a fourth or fifth round NFL pick. And he tells his cohorts with the Generals, don't worry, uh, the rest of the owners are going to pay for Doug Flutie's contract. He sends a letter to the commissioner of the USFL uh, at this point, Harry Usher, and says, my signing Doug Flutie is doing amazing things for the USFL. No one can argue what it's doing. And now I expect every owner in this league to pay for Doug Flutie's con- contract. Well, they all basically flashed the middle finger and said, we're not paying for this guy's contract. It's the, I mean, I was researching this at the same time. He's guaranteeing that Mexico is going to pay for the wall, you know? It was just a big nonsense brag. He had no idea. Donald Trump swore he could get a fall TV deal. It's so easy. I don't know how we haven't done this. I'll be able to get it super quick. You know, how many times have we heard that from him? No TV deal. Of course not. Um, it's on and on. Donald, Donald Trump held a meeting, invited P. Roselle to meet him at a hotel suite in the Pierre in New York City, 1984. You know, Roselle is the enemy. He's the NFL. He's the enemy. He's the last guy you should be meeting with if you're an owner of a USFL franchise. Trump holds a meeting. Roselle shows up. Trump tells him he doesn't really like the USFL. He wants an NFL team. What can he do to get an NFL team? He'll throw the USFL under the bus. He doesn't care. Trump, uh, Roselle, kind of knowing a con man when he sees it, says, 
as long as I'm the commissioner of this league, you and your family will have nothing to do with it. I mean, if past is prologue, this is prologue. You know, this is Trump 30 years ago. It's Trump now. Trump, the USFL owner, is Trump, the president of the United States. The same stuff on just a much bigger scale. Yeah, I mean, and that's really what kind of fa- – I mean ultimately, like even if you're not making a political statement, you're just making – you're just following a businessman. You're going – these patterns are over and over again because they're just this bad decision making. It was like as soon as you get rid of David Dixon and you bring in Donald Trump, it's like all the decision making just goes haywire. Because I mean, I'm still baffled by how he was able to convince the USFL owners to walk away from 67, you know, 245 million dollars, I think approximately over four years at a, at a time when that was a huge TV money. Because of yeah. the promise of greater they didn't like the TV deal, so they hated the TV deal because they thought um, number one, it didn't it didn't have a blackout policy, and they just thought they were losing tons and tons of money on attendance figures because of the blackout situation. So um, it wasn't quite the great TV deal that maybe it sounds right now, but it was for a league that was only you know two years old when they started the lawsuit, which is pretty tremendous. It's almost like they didn't realize how well they were doing at the time, um, in large part because the Charlotte and came along. And fool them all. I mean, again, it's not, I feel like it's going to sound political and it's not. I would be saying that if Donald Trump were a Democrat, a liberal, an independent, I don't care. He's a con man. It's what he does. He came along. I, I'm saying this as a guy who loved the USFL. He came along. He wanted an NFL team. The NFL kept rejecting him. He saw that as a, as a way of getting in. And he sold the league under the bus. That's all he did. He just sold it. And ultimately, a lot, hundreds of players, cheerleaders, popcorn vendors, fellow owners, administrators um, were left out of work because this guy wanted an NFL team. And when he called a year later and he did the 30 for 30 with Mike Tolan about a decade ago, and he called the USFL small potatoes. I mean, I wanted to punch him in the face through the screen. Small potatoes wasn't small potatoes to me and it wasn't small potatoes to a lot of guys who freaking lived and died with that league. So there you go. Yeah, I mean, that's what we we talked about this before. Is like I followed it because of Herschel Walker. I mean, it was like the great, greatest thing that I had ever seen, you know, and it was like very, I mean, for guys like our age, it was very, it had a huge impact. And, you know, yeah, so, I mean, yeah. it's, 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 it's awful, which I guess that leads us into this, to probably the great, the, the, where the, the title of the book comes from, which is, you know, the big lawsuit, the antitrust case, which is like where the USFL was ordered or awarded $1 million or $1 in damages that was because of antitrust rules upgraded to $3. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, can you give us a little bit of overview of how this case came up, came together? Because, And specifically, um, I, I really want to ask about Harvey Meyerson, who was the lawyer for the USFL and his three, you know, his, and I think this is his term, the smoking guns he had. Yeah. So um, basically, the USFL decided, led by Donald Trump, to sue the NFL. Chet Simmons, the original commissioner, thought it was not a good idea. Uh, Trump thought it was a great idea. And he, you know, he was right that the NFL monopolized um, television for football. They did, actually. It was a monopoly. And the USFL could have made that case. Just made that case. It was a monopoly. We don't have a fair chance, blah, blah, blah. We want to go to fall, but we can't because the NFL is monopolized TV. Maybe you can make that case. Jerry Argovitz, the owner of the Houston Gamblers, begged Trump 
let's at least hold the case in Houston where people love the USFL and we have a sympathetic jury and blah, blah, blah. Trump was, Trump was dogmatic and adamant that the, the, the case had to be held in New York because it was his town. And he hired, first attorney he hired was Roy Cohen, longtime friend, notoriously sinister bulldog, uh, McCarthy as a McCarthy era uh, attorney who happened to be in the uh, early stages of having AIDS at that point and, and wasn't long for the earth. And Trump was convinced that they hired Roy Cohen that the NFL would, would settle immediately, that they would shudder in fear. He actually told that to people. Well, that didn't happen. And then when Cohen was let go by the USFL, they brought in this guy, Harvey Meyerson. And Harvey Meyerson was this 45-year-old attorney, super, super uh, annoying, super, super arrogant. He was the attorney who would just beat the snot out of you over and over and over again with the same points until you were just like, okay, enough. You win, you win. And, you know, they held a case in New York City, Manhattan, and the USFL had all these people ready to go to testify. And instead, they only called the bare number of people. They, both commissioners were called, Chet Simmons and Harry Usher. Howard Cosell, who was drunk on the stand, was called. Al Davis, even though he was one of the Raiders, testified on behalf of the USFL that it was a uh, monopoly. And their star witness was Donald Trump. And I interviewed a juror who said that Donald Trump was the worst witness she's ever seen in her life, that he made the USFL seem like the bully, and he made them seem unsympathetic. And ultimately what the jury decided was that, yes, the NFL was a monopoly, and yes, the NFL had an unfair advantage and fought, but the greatest enemy to the USFL was the USFL, and that's why they gave them a dollar. So you had all these people who for a minute couldn't believe their good fortune. I interviewed Chuck Fusina, the Philadelphia Stars quarterback. He was taking classes for a master's degree at LaSalle. And his teacher interrupted the class, somehow found out, you guys just won. And he's like, holy crap, this is amazing. We won. And then, you know, five minutes later, oh, you guys won a dollar. And it's like, wow. Well, that was a fun three years. So that's how it went. All right, so Jeff, let me ask you one, th- one, one or two more things before we get going here. Um, so right now, as you're counting down to the release of the book, you have been rating the top 25 players in USFL history. I believe today I saw number 12 was Reggie White, which I was surprised he wasn't higher. But then I read um, the commentary you had, and I was like, well, okay, that makes sense. Uh, that's like, and it was like really well thought out. Um, is Herschel Walker number one? <laughs> no, Herschel Walker is not number one. <laughs> that wasn't a setup because, either. <laughs> no, Herschel Walker's. I'll tell you, my. Um, so I have uh, I, the top three all could have been in well, Right now, I have um, Kelvin Bryant, the Stars halfback, at number one. Sam Mills, the Stars linebacker, at number two, and Herschel at number three. Now you could you could mix and match that any way you want, but the the list is really it's the, the best players just from in the USFL. So Reggie White, he only played two years in the league. He was kind of a work in progress. He was awesome. But, he, you know, at the time, he was rather, he was a force, uh, you know, pure force. He developed so many moves later on. Um, and Herschel was great in the USFL. But the two guys on the Stars, I would say, were even greater, just pure USFL players. Yeah, no, and I think, I thought the list, I mean, I think the list is fun. I mean, I've bookmarked it so I can get, uh, keep track of it. It's great. I would tell everybody to go look at it. Um, you know, so the book is called $1 Football. Is that correct? 
No, football for a buck. Football for a buck, right. Okay, the $1 football was the book we were talking about earlier. That's my fault. Uh, football yeah. for a buck, and it's coming out on September 11th, right? Um, how how can people find you and find out more about the book and follow along with what you're up to? All right, so it's available everywhere now for pre-order, you know, Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and all that. And uh, I write regularly about it at jeffperlman.com. You can, you can follow me on Twitter um, at jeffperlman. And uh, I always answer questions. I'm happy to talk about this stuff nonstop. It's a real, of all the books, this is my eighth book, and it's the one I was the, by far the most passionate about from the very beginning. It was like my dream, dream sports book. So um, for me, it's a real, it's just a labor of love, and I'm really, really happy it finally exists. Yeah, it's, it's great, and I, I'm, I'm only upset that it's, uh, I don't have my copy uh, yet because I have a flight coming up on Sunday and Monday, and then I would oh, totally, read, yeah, I would totally read read the thing now because I mean. I think it's a, a really cool subject, and I think that the um, parallels, um, you know, if the past is prologue, reading this book about the USFL, it really it tells you a lot about sports business, and it tells you a lot about Donald Trump, and it tells you a lot about just American history, I think. And, you know, and it's, it's just a fascinating story because there are so many interesting characters, there's so many interesting people, and like you and I, like you and I have talked about here, it had such an impact on people that I don't think people who didn't live through it are aware of. I think all people need to do is go back and look at the crazy uniforms, and you'll be like, ah, I kind of get it. Um, yeah, and also, you know what it was really for me? It was like uh, it was like a love letter to a league I really sort of cherished, and you know, as much as Trump hangs over it, it's really not a Trump book. Um, it's a book about a league I loved and crazy players and drug parties on planes and, you know, hookers showing up at the Portland breakers practice and, you know, Herschel arriving in a helicopter for his first practice and guys getting, and the, uh, the Boston breakers thinking that, you know, the outland trophy winner, Dave Remington agreed to sign with them. And they, they, they go to greet him at the airport. And it turns out, someone played a joke on them and Dave Remington, it was, it was some guy disguising his voice as Dave Remington. Like this is a million crazy, just off the wall stories of a league that I, you and I both loved. Yeah. In a way, it almost reminds me of some of those classic like rock and roll stories, right? That, you know, they they could never happen today. And they probably could only have happened in that period, like in the mid eighties. Um, where like that stuff was just, it seemed like it just was, that was what the culture was. And, and you know, and, it, and I'm so glad you wrote the book. Um, I, I really well, do, I really do hope people uh, go out and read it. Um, and I hope people connect with you because, you know, besides the book, you, you just do some really great writing and like really great stuff. So I, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh man, it's my honor. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Once again, I want to thank my guest, Jeff Perlman. His book, again, is Football for a Buck, The Crazier Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL, and it's out on September 11th. And the joke we traded back and forth on Twitter was, if you can only read two books about Donald Trump next week, make sure that Bob Woodward's is the other one. And I will link to the book in the show notes. As always, if you'd like to find out more about what I'm up to, you can visit my website. It's www.davewakeman.com. You can follow me on Twitter. That's at David Wakeman. Hook up with me on LinkedIn. You can also send me emails with your thoughts, your ideas, your questions, your concerns, your suggestions, whatever. I like to get your feedback. 
It is my name, Dave, at DaveWakeman.com. Also, if you're interested in getting my weekly newsletter about value, marketing, strategy, and a whole lot of other stuff that just random thoughts that fly through my head, send me an email with the newsletter in the subject line of that same email address, Dave at DaveWakeman.com. And finally, if you like what we're doing here on the podcast, I'd love it if you'd subscribe. I just added Stitcher the other day, and you can get us on iTunes and SoundCloud and I think a bunch of other spots as well. Um, so subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, do all that stuff, share the thing. You know, I, I appreciate you listening, and until next time, take it easy. See you soon.